so last week we finished up our series in Ecclesiastes. Some of you were rejoicing over that. You, you felt like you could finally be lifted out of depression and uh, back, into, uh, back into a positive, healthy state of mind, which is good. And we talked, if you remember last week, we finished off our series in Ecclesiastes talking about this idea of becoming human, uh, becoming truly human, what it means to, to have our humanity restored. And we connected that idea to being Christ-like, to being like Jesus, that uh, as we come to know Jesus, and as we become more like Jesus in our lives, uh, we're becoming more human. Not less human, but more human. And our lives should be, are intended to be, this process of following Jesus, becoming gradually conformed to his image, and thereby our humanity being restored, being healed, being renewed, and the image of God being uh, redeemed within us. And I want to just park on that subject for a couple of weeks, even though this isn't part of the Ecclesiastes series, I want to just stay with that theme, this whole idea of, of being conformed to the image of Jesus and growing spiritually, because I suspect that for a lot of Christians, there is a huge chasm between the idea, the theory of gradually growing over our lives to become more like Jesus and become more human, and the actual day-to-day reality which is that many of us just don't see much growth in our lives at all. And we don't really feel like a lot of the time we are becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more human. Uh, I think a lot of us want to. I think we have this desire to grow, but for whatever reason, we don't know how. We're not motivated. Life's too hard. We're too distracted. We, we don't feel like there is that general progression along this path towards Christ-likeness. And so I want to look with you at what this process means. What does it mean to become practically, to become more like Jesus, to become more human over the course of our lives. I remember when I was in school in year 13, seventh form, for those of you in my era, uh, we had, uh, every year our school, Birkenhead College, we had Athletics Day. And that was a day the whole school shut down and everybody went to this athletics park and competed in athletic events for the day. It's a lot of fun. Uh, And the rules were you had to, everybody had to enter at least one athletic event. Now, if you know me, I'm not particularly athletic. I know you wouldn't think it to look at me, but believe it or not, I'm not particularly athletic. Uh, but we, you know, we all had to enter one event. And so uh, me and my friends, what we decided to do is the, uh, what's the one where you, is it 1,500 metres, the three laps? Is that 1,500 metres or 1,200? Okay, whatever that one is. The, the three laps around the track race. That's what we decided to do. And our thinking was that we would all run together and would all run slowly so that no one of us would stand out. So, you know, yeah, we, we wouldn't look stupid because we'd just jog it and we're just kind of this group mentality. So we signed up for that race and the day came, we all went there and the, the race was scheduled for one o'clock. At about 12 o'clock, my friends said, hey, we've got a bit of time before the race starts and they knew that McDonald's was just out of the park over the road. So they said, why don't we go down and we'll get ourselves some Maccas for, for lunch first and then we'll come back in time for the race at one o'clock. Now, I knew that it was completely illegal to take off out of the park and go to McDonald's for lunch. This was not allowed. You could not leave the athletic park. So I said, no, being the upstanding student that I was, I said, no, boys, I'm not going to follow you to McDonald's and engage in this behaviour. But if you are going to go, could you bring me back a quarter pounder? <laughs> so, so they said, all right, I put my order in for the quarter pounder, and off, off they went. We got to about 10 to 1, and they weren't back, and my race got called. Uh, and so what do you do? I I had to go down to the start line there and my friends were nowhere to be seen and all of a sudden I'm totally on my own. 
There's all these other runners there who actually intended to enter this race because they thought they could do all right in it. They're wearing the proper gears, they're doing proper warm-up exercises. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was waiting desperately, just counting down, but, but by the time one o'clock rolled around, my friends still weren't back from McDonald's. And so the teacher lined us all up and uh, got out the starter pistol and, you know, take your marks, set, go. And no one had ever explained to me the philosophy of running the 1500 meters about pacing yourself. So I just took off. I mean, I just threw everything at it, just bolted off the start line, gave it everything. And for the first lap, I was doing really well, really surprised myself. I was in the lead pack of these runners. And then over the course of the race, over about the second lap and into the third, my body just started to completely deteriorate. My legs just became jelly, couldn't even feel, it was just everything to keep them pounding along the track. Uh, my eyesight got all blurry, my chest was just pounding away, I couldn't see anything. I was, it just took every ounce, every fibre of my being just to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I slowed down and down and down and gradually everybody was overtaking me. I, remember, I was on the inside lane of the race and I remember rounding the last corner and coming along the home stretch of this race just thinking if I can just get to that finish line. And sure enough, as I came along this finish line, uh, the, the home stretch, my friends had arrived back from McDonald's and they'd all lined up along the inside of the track to cheer me on. And one of them was holding across the track, like across my pathway, this little yellow box <laughs> with a quarter pounder in it. And I, I was just so mentally fatigued, I didn't know what I was doing. And I, as I ran past, I must have thought I was running a relay race or something, I reached up and grabbed it. So now I'm running the 1500 meters race with a quarter pounder in my hand as well. And the crowd on the opposite bank just going hysterical, laughing at me. And I thought, oh, well, at least I need to try and be a hero here and salvage something out of this. So, so I, I raised my quarter pounder aloft <laughs> and waved to the crowd as I ran. But as I, as I lifted up my quarter pounder, I felt myself falling over. And you know how you stumble, try and regain balance, and I'm desperately trying to keep going, but I just totally lost balance, and I just crashed on this track, just keeled over, arms and legs everywhere, and my quarter pounder sort of went the width of the track, you know? It was like bun, meat, cheese, meat, bun, you know? The whole thing, everybody that wasn't already ahead of me ran over the top and finished the race and I was just a mess on the track. It was not my proudest moment, it was not my finest moment. I was so fatigued that I then proceeded to throw up in a rubbish bin. I was just so utterly exhausted and not up to it at all. So that was the end of my, uh, my athletic career. And I decided to become a pastor after that. I thought, this is, I can't hack it. But you know, I wonder whether in there somewhere, in that sad and sorry story, is there a bit of an analogy to the way that sometimes our Christian lives unfold? You know, often for most Christians, you do start with a bang, don't you? You, do, you come out of the gate running. If you remember back to that time when you first became a Christian, those of you that are Christians, uh, you often start with real momentum in life in your Christian life. You want to grow deeper with Jesus. You're fired up about reading the scriptures. You want to see your character change. You want to put, put these, sin, in, these sins in your life to death. You want to get engaged in the church. You're just into it, you know? But so often what happens is at some point in our lives, we stop growing. Sometimes over a period of time, sometimes quite quickly, our growth just plateaus and we stall out and we just end up stumbling around the track 
like I was stumbling around that race. We just reduced to a spiritual walk rather than any kind of real pace in our spiritual lives. And worst case scenario, you do what I did and just completely crash out. And there's plenty of people that do that spiritually as well, give up on God, give up on the church. It's just too hard. It's not worth it. And they bail altogether. So often we struggle to sustain that momentum in our spiritual lives. We want to grow, but we just don't quite know how. So over these next couple of weeks, what I want to do is talk about a set of practices that can help us to grow in our lives. Because I think one of the key reasons that we don't tend to grow spiritually is one of the same reasons that I did so badly in that race. I'd done absolutely no training. I'd done nothing to prepare myself for that race. My body was not up to it. I had no muscle at all to give to that race. And so I was just completely fatigued. I couldn't sustain any kind of pace uh, for the first lap. And as Christians, we tend to think that, you know, we're going to do well as Christians. We're going to have this victorious Christian life. But so often we give no thought to spiritual training. We give no thought to preparing for this race. And by spiritual training, I mean a set of practices that we commit to in our lives that facilitate and help our spiritual growth. Things that build spiritual muscle, just like going to the gym and getting into a workout regime is a way to build physical muscle to sustain you physically in life. There are a set of practices that when we start to get these embedded in our lives, they can really start to facilitate and foster our spiritual growth. These are practices that go right back to things Jesus himself did while he lived on this earth. And they're drawn from his life because, believe it or not, Jesus himself needed to grow spiritually. He wasn't born as the spiritually perfected person that just needed to maintain status quo. Hebrews talks about Jesus learning obedience. He had to grow into that relationship and learn obedience. And there are a series of things that Jesus did through his life that helped him to grow. And these are things that have been practiced by Christians down through the ages, from the church fathers right through to the modern period, practiced by people that want to grow, want to go deeper in their love for God, want to go deeper in their love for others, aren't content with just maintaining and just dawdling around the track. So I want to talk about a couple of these practices. Often they're called spiritual disciplines. Uh, You could think of them as spiritual training exercises. I want to talk about a couple of them today that we'll call inward disciplines. These are more focused on our own personal relationship with God. And then next week, I want to talk about three outward disciplines that involve others, the way that we practice our faith in the context of community. Before we jump into these, I want to make one really important point about spiritual growth in general and how these practices work. There's a church in the States called Willow Creek Community Church. Really big church, uh, very successful and healthy church uh, by many estimations. The pastor there is Bill Hybels. He's a well-known Christian speaker and author. And a few years ago, Willow Creek did this big survey of people in their church, surveyed thousands of people, because they wanted to see what the correlation is between church programs and activities and events that they ran and people's spiritual growth. In other words, they wanted to ask the question, does coming to church, participating in a life group, and coming to various church events, how much does this lead people and cause people to grow spiritually? So they surveyed people across a range of indications of how much they participated in church life, and also a set of questions about how much they were growing spiritually. And they published their findings in a book. What they found 
is the correlation between church programs and events and people's spiritual growth is virtually zero. It was a huge shock to many people when they read that, including Bill Hybels. In other words, none of the programs they were running, church services, life groups, men's ministry, women's ministry, none of those things were causing people to grow spiritually. It was a shock to so many churches around the world that had modeled themselves on Willow Creek. And now here's this massive mega church coming out and saying all these programs we run, they don't seem to be causing spiritual growth. But in amongst all that, they found one key variable. One thing that always seemed to lead to people's spiritual growth. One variable that did cause people to grow spiritually. And it was when people took personal responsibility for their own spiritual growth. And people made a commitment themselves to grow in their relationship with God and others. And then what they found is for people that made that commitment and put in place in their life practices that would facilitate that growth, then church programs and activities became incredibly helpful in facilitating and nurturing and supporting and resourcing the growth of these individuals, but only when there had been a prior commitment to take personal responsibility for their own spiritual growth. And friends, that is how it works. You can come to church here as many times as you like, but that will not cause you to grow spiritually. Attending a life group will not cause you to grow spiritually. Even serving in a ministry, good as that may be, it's not going to cause you to grow spiritually. You'll start growing spiritually when you take personal responsibility for your own spiritual growth. I can't take it for you. The elders can't take it for you. Your friends, your life group, no one else can take responsibility for growing spiritually. You've got to decide. It's just like joining a gym in and of itself is not going to make you fit, right? How do you get fit? When you decide that you are going to put in place a fitness routine that is going to help you work on particular muscles, lose weight, get in shape, whatever you want to do. That's when you start to get fit. That's when you start to grow spiritually. So even these practices that we'll talk about, in and of themselves, they're not going to help you grow spiritually. It starts by taking responsibility before the Lord for your own spiritual growth and saying, I'm not content just to plateau anymore. I want to go deeper. I want to grow. And I'm going to make some intentional decisions to see that happen. So two disciplines today that we'll talk about, two training exercises, inward disciplines that focus us on our own relationship with God and help us to grow. The first, quite simply, is Scripture. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Many of you know the story. Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days. He hasn't eaten. He's mentally fatigued. He's physically fatigued. He's completely at the end of himself. And then Satan shows up and gives him these three temptations. These three, really what they are, are three shortcuts to being Messiah. Three easy ways out from the road that he's actually been called to. And each time Satan offers Jesus one of these temptations, how does Jesus respond to Satan? With Scripture. Each time he replies with a verse or two from the Hebrew Bible from the Old Testament that perfectly applies to what Satan has tempted him with, a way of rebuffing this temptation and resisting that attack of the devil. Now you think about that. Did Jesus have a little pocket Bible on him? Did Jesus pull out the iPad, look up the, 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 the relevant re text, do a little search? You know, search under Satan's temptations, number 101, and, and figure out what would be appropriate. He knew it, right? 
And again, don't think that Jesus was born with a Bible downloaded into his head. He had to learn the scriptures just like you and I have to learn the scriptures. But he had internalized the Bible he had so deeply that when he faced these temptations from Satan, he was able to recall scripture, even in a state of complete mental and physical exhaustion that perfectly applied to the temptations Satan was bringing against him. I think all those of us who are Christians would affirm the fact that this is the word of God, that this is God-breathed, inspired by God, that the Bible is useful, as 2 Timothy says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know this stuff, and we'd affirm that, and we believe it, and we sing songs about it. But friends, if I'm honest, I'm amazed by how few Christians have any regular practice of reading and studying God's Word. It's just amazing. And I know the excuses. I know you're tired. I know we get distracted by things in life. I know there's pressure. I know it's difficult with family commitments and responsibilities. I know it's hard to find the right time of day. I know that sometimes when you read it, you don't understand it and you wonder why you're bothering. I know all of those things. But it's amazing that we seem to be able to make time in our week for the gym, but we just don't have time to read the Bible. It's amazing that we can still give a fair amount of our week to watching telly, we're playing the Xbox, but we just don't seem to have time for the scriptures. I don't think it is so much a matter of time. I think it's more a matter of priorities. I think it's a matter of asking whether we really want to grow, whether you're just happy walking around the track or whether you want to get back in this race and grow deeper in love with God and other people, whether you want to grow spiritually, because friends, this is your daily bread. This is your spiritual nourishment. This is your spiritual food. What happens if you don't eat for a day? Body starts to get weak. Energy levels go down. You're not thinking as straight. You can't apply yourself to things as well. What happens if you don't eat for a week? You start to get malnourished. You start to really crash. What happens if you don't eat for a month? You start to seriously physically deteriorate. It's exactly the same with the scriptures. This is your daily bread. This is God's primary way of nourishing you, of feeding you, of speaking to you, of nurturing you in your faith, of strengthening and equipping you for the life of a Jesus follower. This is primarily how it happens. And if we are not having any regular diet of feeding on the scriptures, you will not grow you can do a lot of other things, but if you don't have a regular diet on the scriptures, you just simply will not grow. And I say this with a soft heart, friends, not to condemn you, not to guilt trip you, because I want to see us grow as a church. I want to grow. I want to see you go to new heights in your relationship with God and with others, but there's no shortcut. There is no way apart from the word of God having a regular time. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, if you do not yet have a regular time in the Scriptures, start today. Set up a daily if possible, or at least several times a week. At least 20 to 30 minutes. And I know some of you are saying, man, this is just legalism. This is just, I thought we were about grace as a church. I thought we were about freedom. 
I thought we were, you know, this just sounds like rules. This just sounds like regulations. What would happen if you said that to your gym instructor? If they said to you, look, you want to get fit, here's a cardio workout. And if you said to them, well, this is just rules. This is just legal. I can't believe how legalistic this gym is. All these rules and routines and regulations you've got to follow. I'm going to the gym down the road, man. They're about grace. That gym, I know the head of that gym loves me. That's all I need to know, you know? That's, I, want the, I want the grace gym. You know? Well, your fitness instructor would probably say, well, that's fine, but you won't grow. You won't get fit. If you want to get fit, this is what it takes. And I would argue, friends, that this is all about grace. Grace doesn't save you and leave you where you are. That's not grace. That's cheap grace. That's a counterfeit grace. Grace saves us and it transforms us. Paul says, grace compels me towards holiness. Real grace pulls us forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't always mean it's easy. It's not. Some days you're not going to feel like doing it at all. But just as you have a regular pattern of eating to sustain yourself physically, I want to encourage you and challenge you to set up a regular pattern of feeding on God's Word to nourish you spiritually. And when you spend these times in God's Word, you've got to find the right time of day, I know, and try and make it work. And that's not easy, carving out that space. But when you can do that, we just quickly give you three ways of encountering God's Word, three ways of approaching God's Word. And you can think of this with the acronym MRS, M-R-S. First is meditating, meditating on the Scriptures. That's where you take a passage of Scripture, a verse or two, and you really just soak it up. Not dry study, but you really hear God speaking that verse to you. It's like chewing on a piece of chocolate. You suck all the goodness out of it. You turn it over in your mouth. You enjoy it. And you allow God to press these words on your heart. That's meditating on the Scriptures. R is for reading. Read one or two chapters of the Bible a day. Start in Genesis and Matthew. And then read in parallel the Old and the New Testament. You read for breadth. You read because over time it will give you great familiarity with the sweep of the biblical story. You'll start to feel the contours of the Bible as the action moves forward. You'll start to be familiar with some of the central characters and the plot line of Scripture. You read to get a handle on the whole thing. Don't stop and study those chapters. Just read them. And then S is for study. Take a book of the Bible, choose one book, maybe the book that we're working through at the time in church, whatever it is, and go through that in a more systematic way. One verse or one section at a time. Burrow a little deeper into it. Ask some penetrating questions of that text. You don't need to be a guru. You don't need to learn Greek and Hebrew. You don't need to have a concordance necessarily. Just ask some detective-like questions of that verse and start to unpack and dissect it a little bit and apply it to your life. Three simple things. And that way you can mix it up a little bit. Don't always have to do the same thing all the time. But if you haven't yet got that regular routine of a regular diet on the Word of God, don't leave it another day. This is how you grow. It's just absolutely essential. We're a Word-centered church. And that's not just about teaching from the front. That's about each of us being self-feeders. Not spoon-feeders, self-feeders on the Word of God. So I can't take responsibility for that for you. But I'd encourage you to be intentional about that. Set up that practice in your life if you haven't got it going already. Second discipline is solitude and silence. I know some of you extroverts are starting to shiver and sweat. But this is not as scary as it sounds. We tend to get freaked out about solitude and silence because we associate it with loneliness. Loneliness. 
And we think solitude's about loneliness. Loneliness is the absence of relationship. Loneliness is when you don't have companionship, so you are physically and emotionally alone. Solitude, in this sense, is not that at all. In fact, Christian solitude is about relationship. It's about your relationship with God. It's about temporarily removing yourself from others and removing yourself from the noise and the clutter of life so that you can invest in your relationship with God. Mark chapter 1. Here's an example from Jesus' own life. Mark 1, 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Several verses where you see this happening. Sometimes Jesus gets up early in the morning. Sometimes he stays up late at night. Sometimes he stays up all night praying, like the day before he chose his disciples, stayed up all night praying about that one. But Jesus had this routine, this regular rhythm of drawing away from the crowd, drawing away to a solitary place and coming before his own father, his heavenly father, and investing in that relationship. Because like him, our lives are incredibly busy during the day. There are huge demands on our time. Our life is full of noise. Our life is full of pressure. There's a thousand voices coming at you. The phone is messaging you. The email is beeping at you. The kids are screaming at you. The iPod headphones are in. The car next to you is honking. There's constant, constant noise. Even in your downtime, right? Even when you do take a break. Think about the last time in your life where you actually had complete silence. See? <laughs> Perfectly planned. Perfectly planned. It doesn't tend to happen much, does it? And we're not that comfortable when it does. If I pause too long, you guys get a bit restless. If there's too much of a gap between songs, we get a bit antsy. We don't like, we're not comfortable with silence. We're so conditioned to noise. Even when you rest, even when you relax, there's stuff happening in the background or the iPod headphones are in. We're very, very uncomfortable with silence. And of course, we can experience God in the busyness. I'm not saying that can't happen. We can and we should bring God into every part of every day. You can experience him in the boardroom as much as in solitude. But God is not going to shout over everyone else's voice in your life. He's not going to scream at you over your phone. He's not going to ask to be your friend on Facebook. He's not going to speak over all the other commitments that you've got. God is going to wait. He's going to wait until you draw aside and spend that time with him. That you temporarily detach from these other things that are going on in your day and invest yourself. Now, of course, there's a huge dovetailing here between what we've just been talking about with regular time spent in God's Word because that should be a time of solitude. We can read God's Word in community as well, of course, but that solitude time, when you are alone with God, that's time for Scripture and that's time for solitude. That's you and Him together in a quiet place, in a quiet space, just being with God. And that quiet time and quiet space, don't spend it all just talking at God. And don't spend all of it just reading and studying the Bible. Spend some time just being still in the presence of the Lord. As the psalm says, be still and know that I am God. When was the last time you did that? Just became still and knew that he is God.
that stillness of just enjoying God's presence, of listening to the quiet whisper of the Spirit as He prompts our hearts and reveals to us things that we may just have breezed over in the frantic pace we set for life. That time just for being together, listening and speaking, hearing and enjoying the presence of the Lord. And I would encourage you to get out next year's planner, next year's 2012 planner, as well as these daily times of solitude. Carve out three or four times a year where you spend a more sustained period of solitude with God for at least a few hours. You think, what on earth am I going to do for that time? What am I going to do for three or four hours? I don't like myself that much to spend that much time just with my own company. You know, this is going to be scary. What's amazed me when I've done this is just how much time it actually takes to stop. It's incredible. Because what happens, of course, is you come and you sit down wherever you go. Sometimes I've gone to a beach or a little private retreat center or, or home if there's no one else there, wherever it is. And you sit down and you're like, okay, now's my time of solitude. Go. And of course, what's happening, your mind is still whirring away. It's going incredibly high revs. You're thinking about all the stuff that's just been going on in your week, all the stuff that's coming up. What on earth am I going to fill the next three hours with? It's all just going, 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 going. And you realize, I've been incredibly, incredibly busy. That's the first thing that happens when you take solitude time. You realize what a frantic pace you've been setting. You realize how tense your body is. You realize how your mind struggles to switch off. And that process, this is what the ancient church fathers called centering down, a process of gradually reeling in all these varied thoughts and focusing them at the foot of the cross. This process of centering our heart and our mind fully on God, of even breathing a bit slower just to still and slow ourselves down. I've found that process alone of centering down can take at least an hour. At least an hour of my time is just is stopping and unplugging and disconnecting temporarily from the clutter in my mind and the clutter in my life and just being still. But when you get there, that's when the good stuff starts to happen. When you are then in that space of being fully engaged with God, then you can worship Him like you usually can't because you're so distracted. Not a little bite-sized piece of worship, but really enjoying His presence. Often what happens too in those times is that God reveals particular things about our lives and we go through a process of confession. Again, this is incredibly healthy, but we're not seeing ourselves most of the time as we truly are. You're just getting on with life. You're just getting stuff done. You're just getting through your day. You're just handling it. You're just getting through the Christmas season, whatever it is. We don't see ourselves truly, and it's not until you slow down that sometimes the voice of the Spirit prompts us and says, you know, there's this little area of your life. You need to work on this. This is not good. Sometimes in that time of solitude, we see misplaced priorities. We see ways of thinking about other people that have been incredibly unhealthy. We see who we are as a husband or wife, as a father or mother, as a child, in a new light. And sometimes God will take the time to tap us gently on the shoulder and remind us about those relationships 
And it's never with guilt. And it's never with condemnation. It's always for the purpose of growth. Hebrews says God disciplines those he loves. What father disciplines a son he doesn't love? It's because of love and it's because of your heavenly father's desire for your growth. He is absolutely passionate about it. He wants to make you like Jesus. And sometimes that'll hurt a bit, just like jumping on the treadmill. It's going to hurt those muscles for a while, but it's all for the purpose of growth. And I'll tell you another thing about these times of solitude. It's not about getting a particular feeling. There have been times, remember one of the first times I did this, and it was just amazing, uplifting time when I felt emotionally close to the Lord. It was really enriching. And I thought, this is going to be great. If I can just replicate that, these times of solitude are going to be fantastic. And then the next time I did it was completely different. I didn't really have that strong emotional feeling of closeness. It was still a great time. Still got a lot out of it and felt you know, that, that my relationship with the Lord was strengthened. But I didn't have that emotional closeness. And that's okay. Don't measure these times of solitude by how emotionally close you feel to God. You're not trying to get a feeling out of this. This is investing in your growth and trusting that the results will come. So can I encourage you to carve out the time, and you need to carve it out a long way ahead. If you're anything like me, this is the kind of thing you need to plan, plan months in advance. Months. If you're going to stick to it, because life gets busy. But take a morning. Talk to the family about it. Figure it out. You look after the kids one time, and then your husband or wife looks after them another time, so you can take turns doing this. Or if you just can't get out of it, talk to us. Talk to the church office, and we'll try and figure out some solutions with babysitting or whatever so we can help you create this time. Jill Shaw runs our spiritual retreats periodically, an organized retreat time. You go up to Long Bay. You take this time over a Saturday. Think about this for next year, friends. It really helps in your relationship with God to draw aside. If Jesus needed to do this regularly... Why do we think we can get away without it? The Son of God needed to draw aside to invest in his relationship with God. It's just the same for us. It's a good time of year, I think, to be talking about spiritual disciplines. Coming into summer, everybody's starting to hit the gym, aren't they? Getting in shape, you know, trying to get the body in shape before the swimsuit comes out. The weather's getting better, people are walking the dog, running, you're seeing them all the time, aren't you? We're thinking this way, you're thinking about getting in shape, you're thinking about maybe getting a bit fitter. I personally, my own theory is that I don't have to join a gym because I've got a child who weighs five tonnes, and just lifting him up and down every day is a, is a full upper body workout. So I'm pretty good, uh, I think, in that respect. I'm just kidding, I probably need it desperately. But as you think about that, getting in shape physically, just consider Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8. He said, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for this life and the life to come. And again in 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul says, those who compete in the games, he's talking about like the Olympic games, those who compete in the games go into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That's the prize. We've got to keep our eyes on the prize. A little bit of discipline to become more like Jesus is going to be worth it in the end. And the reality is, friends, if you want to grow in your relationship with God and others, it's not going to happen just by trying harder. It's going to happen by training. 
by developing habits and practices in your life and the power of the Holy Spirit that will enable you to grow, that will enable you to become more like Jesus gradually over the course of your life, enable you to become a little more human and eventually one day to receive that glorious prize, that crown of life that, as Paul said, will never fade away. Isn't that worth a little bit of training? Isn't that worth a little bit of spiritual discipline in the present? Let's put these things in place in our life for the purpose of running that race. Let's pray. Father, we just take this time of silence. Even though we're not that comfortable with silence, Lord, we just centre ourselves on your presence. And Lord, we want to hear your voice. I pray that you would seal these words in our heart this morning. Lord, I know there's many people in this room who really want to grow, who are just sick of plateauing spiritually and just being stalled out in their spiritual lives and walking around the racetrack. Lord, there's a deep hunger here to grow, to grow in our relationship with you and with others. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us, give us the resolve to put some of these practices in place in our lives today. We thank you that this is doable. This is not out of reach. It's not too hard because you've given us your Holy Spirit and the one who is in us is greater than the one who is within the world. We thank you that in these quiet times we're just reminded of your presence with us and your love for us. I think of Isaiah 30, 15 that says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. God, may we find our strength and our salvation in you through these times of repentance and rest, quietness and trust.